clubhouse. This show would not be possible without everyone that you don't see. It is not a walk in the park. It is hard work, and it's it's fucking awesome. Can I say that? I just did. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing the 1883 making of The Road West. So we're going to assume that you guys watched this special. And because of that, there are some scenes and some flashes and some pictures that they show on screen that talk about episodes that go beyond episode three. Um, there are some shots that look like maybe from episode four and beyond. We're going to talk about that here as if you have seen the special. If you don't want to be spoiled in any kind of way about anything that may happen, even if it was just a free frame picture, watch the series and then come back and watch and listen to this podcast. I am so happy that they did this because this is one of those shows, Caroline, that I feel like you suspect there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, but actually getting to see it and getting to see the creators talk about the show, Taylor Sheridan talk about the show and the cast members talk about the show and what it means to them. And then also getting to see and hear about all of the things that are going into making this very large sweeping epic. I mean, I, I think epic is a they fair word. Epic over and over again, didn't they? But it has those proportions to it, it though. It does. It absolutely does. I think it's super important that they had this making of because there have been a lot of people just kind of mindlessly chattering about, you know, oh, they missed this or, oh, they didn't do that quite right. And I think that putting out something like this really allows viewers to say, no, no, that's not true. Let me just tell you, they had cowboy camp or they do it this way or they have a specific prop master who goes through the trouble of making sure they have the exact right, you know, Native American bow if they're going to use that. So I think it's important to legitimizing all the work that they do because they actually are going to show it to the audience and say, look, no, for real all this work is being done and if you hear anything otherwise please feel free to speak up definitely made me chuckle because i think if you remember when we started episode two we had that whole disclaimer about how we weren't going to get into nitpicking about things that the show may or may not get right or wrong for the time period because we're not qualified to speak on it and and horse tech was one of the things that i had mentioned because i had read about it and they had the prop uh, master was on the show talking about the horse tack in particular that when it is a tight shot they're always going to make sure that it is as close to period accurate as it can be audiences expect it audiences have gotten very savvy just like us they freeze frame and they pay attention and the show recognizes that one thing i don't know i mean there are a couple of big takeaways from this one of which that really struck me was how important telling an accurate story was not as a factual story they are all very clear this is fictional history but the the responsibility that taylor and the cast all seem to feel in representing as accurately as possible the people from this time with the people that this show represents whether it's the native americans or it's the immigrants or it's you know these early american pioneers that are that are moving west and moving northwest for a dream 
it made me feel like the show is in good hands. I'm listening to them talk about the weight of that responsibility. I appreciated that it's easier for me to separate out what is historical fiction versus what is storytelling accurately, because those two things are different. For one thing, they made it very clear that history has not represented various people or times accurately. While it may be true when audiences say, hey, this isn't what my history book says this looked like or this should have been, that's probably right. But it seems like Taylor Sheridan and his group are going above and beyond to try to find the real people and the real stories and try to put that on the screen. So I understand how it can be accurate for the time or accurate storytelling and not match history as you know it. Does that make sense? All history is always written from the point of view of the winners, for one thing. And typically men and white men. So when it comes to telling the stories of Native Americans, of women, of children, of people of color, all of those stories were highlighted in this making of as like, we got to do better and we can do a good job of telling their stories. I do feel like I'm going to get some like feedback from our listeners saying like, Caroline, how can you say that history isn't accurate? I'm not a history denier in any form or fashion, but I do think that, you know, some stories were left out of our history books. And and this is hopefully going to give those voices a little bit of room. I think it's Tim McGraw is telling it. He's going through the top causes of death of the pioneers mm. at this time of the day. I think if you pulled, if pulled aside most people, adults or children who have been through basic social studies school, what was the number one cause of death or even top three causes of death of people making their way west? I think Native Americans killing white pioneers would be at the very top of that list. If not number one, maybe they would say disease. You know, I would I would probably say disease in Native Americans. That was because that's just kind of the framework that we're taught. And even current shows, think about like Westworld. Think about like what was the big concern? Well, it was like, you know, bandits and Native Americans grabbing you, right? That was like the whole concern in that show. Right. And it turns out, I mean, according to this list, and now granted, they didn't source this and they didn't give like a bibliography where they're pulling their facts. But from their point of view, Native Americans were the seventh leading cause. I don't think I would have guessed falling off of wagon and crushed underneath it. Something that we've seen now in the show a couple of times. was such a large cause. But you know what? It makes a lot of sense. Or drowning, Mike, because that's such a big deal in our episode three about crossing a river. Suddenly, if you know that drowning is one of the leading causes of death, that really puts the river episode in a different light because now it's like, okay, no, this is this is a serious concern, much more than just like, oh, my stuff will get wet. Like, no, we're talking about people will drown. The drowning uh, aspect of it (laughs) may come into play more than you imagine. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of this making of it was pretty organized right the first 10 minutes or so were the casting aspects of it how they got every the various leads on board and also kind of what they're trying to do with the show there was a big takeaway about who James Dutton is in this Dutton origin story. Absolutely. The the portion with Taylor Sheridan, you might have to read between the lines on some of the things to figure out what's going to be happening next. But he said very plainly that James Dutton, our James Dutton from 1883, is our Kevin Costner's John Dutton's great, great, great grandfather. 
Now, for all of you guys who have been trying to keep up with a family tree, and thank goodness, we were very clear at the beginning of our coverage and when we said, we're going to put a pin in this and we're going to keep updating it as we find out information because we can't really trust a wiki right now. We really can't even trust IMDb. I know people are going back on that and saying, oh, look at this or look at that. I wouldn't even trust that right now. I would really have to go back to these shows. And more importantly, you have to watch these making ofs. You have to watch the little side extras because they're giving us information that hasn't come out in any show. You could be diligent. You can know every show word for word and you wouldn't know that information. Definitely go check out our Facebook group that we are running for the uh, Yellowstone Universe of Shows on Facebook. It is the Yellowstone 1883 and 46's discussion and news group. Because if you head there, you will see the screen grab of Taylor saying this with the subtitles. So we're not making it up and actually so to prove that we're not making it up here is taylor sheridan saying it in, in his own words james is john's great 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 grandfather so we had assumed that he was james was kevin costner john dutton's great grandfather well and to be fair that assumption was based on a tweet between tim mcgraw and kevin costner where they said great grandson and other so, descriptions of the show other official exactly. descriptions of so the show i, I hesitate yeah. to even use the word assume because right. we were really working off what we thought was fact right show bible fact so but taylor is the creator and for him to say great 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 grandfather one if you look at the dates it actually makes it make a little bit more sense because James being John's great grandfather requires all of these Duttons to be having kids in their like mid thirties really. And to required make- some of them to live to like a hundred. Right. right. <laughs> when well, we went yeah. back and we said the, you know, the average, you know, lifespan in 1883 was 39. And, you know, we had to have some of these people, even though, yes, it was a generation or two away from that. Still, they weren't living that long, you know? Right. For James to be Kevin Costner's great-grandfather, that would make James the grandfather of Dabney Coleman, John Dutton. The Dabney Coleman who plays John Dutton's father in the flashback scenes of Yellowstone. We know he dies when he's 90. There's an episode uh, of season three of Yellowstone that shows that. And Kevin Costner is playing Kevin Costner. They're not using the uh, younger actor to play Kevin Costner in those flashback scenes. So we know Dabney Coleman, John's father, is 90 when he dies. That would have made him the grandson of James Dutton, of Tim McGraw's character, which makes either... John, who's five in the show, or Spencer, who we haven't seen in 1883, but we know is the younger son. We're, we're saying Spencer because that's... The, that's what it says on IMDb. And, and it's Wiki. the only name applied to him in any other context. So we're going to use the IMDb until proven wrong, is the younger brother, uh, the youngest of the three James Dutton kids that we've seen. So one of those kids would give birth to Dabney Coleman or that one of those characters' wives would give birth to Dabney Coleman, John Dutton. Now, if James is, in fact, the great-great-great-grandfather, that means that James has, let's say, John, who's five in the show. John, or his brother, has a kid. That kid has a kid. That kid gives birth to Dabney Coleman, John Dutton, who gives birth to Kevin Costner, John Dutton. That's two full generations that have now been inserted into the works. That's a huge game changer, and it really expands 
the amount of story that 1883 can tell. They've now literally added two generations worth of stories that this show can now run and tell and almost become an anthology over the years, you know, which is smart on Taylor's part, um, but really does shake up potentially if and watch the clip again and you can listen to it. Go watch his body clip. It's from about four and a half minutes into the special. He says it very deliberately because he even stops after the second great and thinks for a second and adds the third great. So he's being very deliberate when he says great, great, great grandfather. So I think we have to take that as as fact for now. I do not know who to to treat more factually than the creator telling us that information. It does open up the story quite a bit because it made us feel like we knew like the bookends very well and we understood what had to come between. But now, like you said, so many more family members can go in. Also, side note, in talking about Yellowstone, there was that clip that I saw about how he's talking about Yellowstone not going on for forever at all. More like season five, we've got to start... I think he compared it to a chess game and you've got to start taking chess pieces off of the table. It was implied that there was only another season or two left for Yellowstone. So I think he's going to go throw all his energy into who were all the Duttons that came before. Fascinating. Uh, Yeah, really fascinating. And that's like literally that that kind of bombshell. It really goes by you if you're not paying attention to the special and you just have it on background music. Oh, and a lot of people won't choose to watch this. That's why we're so uh, happy that you guys are listening because there's there's a fair chance that people say, oh, that's just one of those after show things. And I'm not really into that. I just like to watch what happens in the episodes. But this Taylor Sheridan universe does not allow for that. You guys, you really need to like watch some of these extras. I know you listeners are already so smart to listen to podcasts, but also check out some of these extras. It really matters. Taylor doesn't make a try. He likes to talk about his shows. <laughs> he, right. He, and, and, and he's listen not to the hard interviews to pick from down. Him. Right. Listen right. to the interviews. Listen to the shows. This special gives great insight into Margaret and into Thomas's backstory, which through at least three episodes, we haven't gotten any of it yet. What did you think of Margaret's backstory? Oh, my goodness. So surprised. So they tell in this one that she was a nurse in the Civil War at 17. Shocking information. I have a whole different idea of who this woman is and a whole different respect again to that, like why she would be feeling a certain way about Elsa right now, because at her age, look at all that she was responsible for. You know, she she had to grow up fast. So I was really happy that we got that backstory and really surprised what the backstory was. That also makes her between 35 and 39 years old, depending on when she was 17 in the Civil War. So if we're doing some quick math, she has a daughter who just turned 17. She's 39-ish. So that makes her having uh, Elsa at like 22, at like the upper edge. This is the age that people are having kids, you know, and maybe even 22 is even late um, for for this age. And because there's a war on, maybe you're not having a kid right until the war is over. Uh, And your husband's also also in prison. (laughs) Right. We know that her husband was not available. So, yeah. Right, right, right. So, but I mean, I think it's useful, though, especially when we're now inserting two extra generations. These Duttons weren't having the progenitors of the family at 35 or 40. They were having them at 20, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Which again makes sense, though, because if you if you think about the life expectancy, you have to get the next generation to adulthood, yeah. you know, or at least 17, 18 years old before, you know, the generation before dies. So you're hoping at least that would be the goal. That kind of makes sense, actually, to me that like that would be the surviving age ranges. And if you're going to go with that, 
then you need to actually have those extra generations. Dabney Coleman is an aberration living to 90 versus his ancestors at that point. I want to I back up a little bit up to there was a clip from Mark Reisman and who plays Joseph in the show who has a wonderful accent. Uh, yes. I really I really enjoyed listening to him in the show talk about the role and he had a great line. He was talking. He's like, you look next to you and there's Billy Bob Thornton and next to him is Tim McGraw and then Sam Elliott and then Lamont. He's like, that's a pretty good line to walk into town with. He was, <laughs> Can you imagine? I cannot. I, I cannot like imagine. Such a badass. I mean, I yes, I can. The uh, I like puffed up my own chest listening to that. Like I would just stride. Ooh. Yeah, I may or may not have a poster blown up of that picture over my bed uh, like I was a little kid. That's a pretty badass <laughs> shot of, of that line of the five of them walking into town from the second episode. So uh, anyway, there's a great clip from him and from the woman who plays Noemi. Her name is, and I apologize in advance, Ioana Gratiella Brancusi. Both of them had their takes on what the show meant. Ms. Brancusi's is interesting because she talks about freedom and how the show is about freedom, which is something that we've talked about a bunch so far in this podcast. Interesting to see her take on it. Let's listen to that clip real quick. 1883 is a journey of an unlikely group of people fighting against the forces of nature, the malice of humankind in search of change and a new home. It's about freedom. It's about the American dream, which, you know, it's, it's become this synonymous with the idea of freedom, about the beauty of it and the ugliness of it and all the beautiful things people will do for their freedom and then also all the ugly things they do for it. That's some poetry that could that sounds like almost something that come, comes out of Elsa's mouth in a voiceover, the beauty of it and the ugliness of it. Right. This duality. We keep hearing a lot about that. Right. Nature is beautiful. And then underneath the the underbelly of nature is death lurking for you. The snake coming for your doopy out of the grass. You know, <laughs> it's it's really interesting. And then you also have Mark talking about this theme that we've heard Sam talk about. If you listen to our interview last week and Tim talked about this idea of man versus man, man versus nature man versus himself kinds of themes that the show is going in everyone here seems very much on the same page about what kind of story they're telling i think we touched on this quite a bit actually in our last podcast where we were saying there's a difference between freedom and free-for-all and that you know there there is this this strange mix of both yes freedom but but within structure, within some amount of control, within some amount of restraint, I guess, if you're going to be in this unlikely group of people, like you can't just do anything you want at any point in time. That's not really how this works. And it's kind of messy to talk about freedom in that way, because I think most of us picture like in my head, I picture like the the physical action of like Maria on the mountainside and sound of music, like just twirling, like that's freedom. Like you just twirl and you just want. Like, right? Like, right. like the hills are alive. You can do anything you want, right? Like that kind of freedom feeling. But the reality is that, you know, no, that's that's not really exactly how this works. And it, it certainly can't work within this group. I like that he said unlikely group, because when you really put them in a lineup of Joseph next to Thomas, next to James, next to Margaret, like 
all these people that are just so different, have such different backgrounds. It allows you to see how Taylor Sheridan is going to be able to write stories that are so complex and with such variety that you don't normally get. You normally get like one POV of what it's like. You and I may be one of the last generations that really grew up with what became the traditional view of the American dream. I think so. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that kids today or parents today, younger parents than us, the generation below us, parents. I don't know if they're they're raising their kids with the American dream concept, but it's interesting. This show is kind of showing the origin of that American dream dream concept that I think we grew up with. We learned about the American dream in a positive fashion, right? You only really Very much. you only hear about the the good aspects, the perks of the American dream, the goals. For me, it was definitely like get married, have a family, have a good job and have a house. That seemed to be like the main things that you had, you needed to have lots of and be successful. For and those. that was that was being yeah. successful. If you did now, all those things, you were successful. Interesting, because even at our age and with our own kids, I am telling my own kids, I just had this conversation the other day where I said, you know, you don't have to get married if you don't want to. And my son was like, really? And I was like, no. I mean, if you I said, I would like you to have a have someone in your life that that you can depend on and and have some support in your life. But if that's a best friend or however that partner looks for you, you don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids. They're very expensive. It's a big responsibility. (laughs) And he was like, wow. Wow, like I almost am a little bit rewriting the American dream for my own children. You know, we talk a lot about like for my part of my American dream was that you had to go to university, you had to go to a four year school. And I'm telling my own kids, well, let's figure out what you want to be and then figure out the best path to get there. That might be a university, but there might be a different way. So it's interesting, even at our age and stage, I think we're kind of reassessing. You don't need to have kids in your early 20s. Right? Of course, you can of have course. kids. You know, I, I had my son. I was 30 when I had Tom. I was still one of the first people in my social group to have a kid, even at 30. See, and I had all three of my kids by the time I was 25. I was the third. And my there was a big gap between me and my sisters. And my parents were 27 when they had me. And there was a five and seven year gap between me and my sisters. You know, so my parents were having their kids at 19, 20, 21. It's just the shipping thing. But this show, I think, is telling the story of not only the origin story of the Duttons, but the origin story of the American dream, which is not because it's being created out of whole cloth, has a lot of danger and dark underbelly to it that we don't associate with it. Mike, did you know or were you taught that there was like ads in the newspaper, like over in Germany or Poland or any of that that were describing America and that that was like what brought people over like were you aware of that because i feel like my history class did not talk about that at all i was aware of the immigrant movements that were done with the promise of a better life that mm-hmm. tracts of land could be purchased but like ads like in a paper over there no and, and mark reisman and he he doubles down he talks about a german texan uh yeah. who, who was writing almost it sounded like odes to the american west specifically texas though so, yeah and the beauty of the land and really selling people on that it wasn't just it wasn't just like a three line ad of hey there is land for sale in america it was waves of grain kind of you know it was america the beautiful in 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 uh written form in stanza form you know but you know if people were making commission to bring people over in the same way thomas and shay are getting paid to escort these people you could see right the the capitalism of it all the 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 business of 
filling business America of with relocating people. people. Right. Of filling a country. This is a, this what is a lot a of wild idea, right? I was remarking to you how big Texas is because I forget all the time. I didn't grow up, obviously, in Texas. So I forget all the time until you and I are talking about it how fucking big Texas is. And then I always shake my head and laugh and say, yeah. Yes. You pat me on the head and say, you're. <laughs> You're so cute, but uh, but but America. I don't mean it's to a, be like that, but it's just it's so like born and bred in me that's like, yeah, it's bigger. But America is so fucking big. There's so much room in the middle of this country. It is mm-hmm. outrageous the amount of land that is here. And so imagine, imagine this empty bottle. And someone who is just a good go-getter has this idea, let's just transplant. You know, they talk about in the special, which, again, really interesting that they even spent any time talking about it. There was high unemployment. There was bad economic economic times. It was, it was the perfect powder keg to relocate all of these Eastern Europeans in particular and put them into America. It, it just all kind of came together almost like kismet. And you, th- and you wonder yourself, how did German families wind up in Montana or Wyoming? This is how. You might even think that about Texas. I mean, we have Fredericksburg. We have all these areas of Texas that are hugely German. I mean, still like, you know, German written words, stuff like that, that are, you're like, how did this happen? Now I understand how this happened. Yeah. I get why brought is a big deal. <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 So, yeah, no, it was really it, it was just interesting to hear. And again, I appreciate the show because they're spending so much time in this world. It is a great little tool to to think about things that we haven't thought about maybe since grade school, if we were even paying attention then. It's something as a homeschool mom that I would 100% consider, you know, showing my kids as an, an entertaining way to talk about history and to talk about different aspects that, you know, again, I thumbed through our Texas history book here and was just kind of reading through and the things that they touched on versus the things that the show is touching on. And there was like little nugs every once in a while that would like mention a wagon train or or something like that, but not not like this. And this really, because it's so gritty, you can really put yourself into it. What did you think of the Thomas backstory? We get we get a little bit filled in on on how he came to be the man he is. Well, we had talked a little bit in the last episode when we were speaking about why would he be motivated to wear his uniform from the from the service and why he would have more of the heart of of change as possible in America. And we can see the world can change easily and and resting that on children. And so for him, you know, I had mentioned in that that, you know, I felt like, you know, he he was likely a slave at some point, though we had no real understanding of what that looked like. And then he had been in the service and now he was a free man working with a white man side by side. Like all of this had changed so much. So we actually get these are the sentences. I'm just going to read them for you. He's been on his own since he was 12. He was a slave, but he actually went into the house and had found that the slave owner had died of natural causes. He essentially just accepted that that equaled freedom for him at 12. He went off on his own and he's been on his own. So a little part of me also feels like he has this soft heart for kids, most especially now with Noemi and the little boys. I feel like when you see them, he he, he makes me think of the line, be the person you wish you had when you were a kid. He would have wished an adult would have stepped in and would have helped him at 12, you know, to, to make sure he has food and everything he needed. The way that he steps in with her makes so much more sense for me now. And just his open heartedness that how he got into this and LaMonica himself, the actor, his real dedication to wanting to tell the story of black cowboys and how they were a part of the landscape and how they haven't really been given any sort of voice or or a good portrayal at all 
at any point here. I mean, even the idea of, of the Buffalo Soldiers is something that I yes. think people know about in a really uh, 10,000 foot view, but not the specifics of it. Just so you guys know, here in Houston, we actually have the Buffalo Soldier Museum. I'm sure it's big like everything else, and I'll marvel at how large it is. <laughs> Probably. Well, and, you know, we have the Jim J. Bullock Texas History Museum right there in Austin. And so you can get a chance to see that. It's very easy to find right off of 35. I believe they have some <laughs> nice cast iron uh, steers, longhorns in that museum. Which oh, again, longhorn. Yeah. So I really liked this whole section with LaMonica because not only listening to him fill in the story of Thomas, but getting to hear him about his experience of bringing a, a black cowboy story to life. He references Danny Glover's character from Lonesome Dove, and in particular, the character that the Danny Glover character was based on, Bose Igard. Mm-hmm. During the filming of the show, they got to go to like a historical marker where this real life black cowboy had existed. And watching LaMonica tear up about yeah. getting in touch with this aspect of his history, of all of our histories, but like getting to live it, it was really sweet and I think affecting to show how much this means to him on a personal level. Absolutely. And for those of you who maybe are taking a little trip through Texas, it was in Weatherford, um, which is a well-known area right close to where they, they were um, doing the shooting here. And it was actually the gravesite. So you can pay your respects. I think the other backstory kind of revelation, and the show has touched on this, but I think Taylor in his interview frames it in a very particular way. He talks about James. James was drafted into the confederacy in the the civil war he didn't join up that's an important point i think just as far as motivations and you know he he wasn't bloodthirsty i was my takeaway from that right he wasn't he wasn't the kind of person who had the soul who was okay with killing other people right it was more he was just doing his duty you know protecting his way of life and you know protecting his his own land uh so taylor goes on to say and this is a paraphrase it's not an exact quote but it's pretty close he says he comes home to a destroyed homeland and that watching what was left after the Civil War in the aftermath, he lost faith in that society. He does dream of a better life for him and his family, and that is his motivation. You know, we've talked a lot in these podcast episodes. Why is everyone on this trip? What is everyone's motivation? What is Shay's motivation and Thomas? What is James dragging his family, six, now four, across this land for? It was to get away from the burning remnants of this old life that he didn't agree with and didn't see himself in anymore well i think the phrase lost faith is perfect and especially it sheds some light onto why he would no longer have interest in things like elsa becoming a lady of society you know like all of those values yeah would be lost and 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 it's not so much you know him just butting heads with margaret but like he does not appreciate what that life brought right the idea of dressing her up in some cotillion gown while Mm -hmm. the or the earth remains scorched 20 years later seems probably seems like such whiplash to him Maybe even PTSD inducing, uh, you know, by itself. You know, we did learn from uh, from Isabel May. I believe she says that they were farmers, that they had worked a small farm in Tennessee, which is interesting because, again, that was a little tidbit that they hadn't actually talked about on what did they do in Tennessee, these Duttons, Mm -hmm. before moving. One of the things that Tim McGraw says is the arc of his character is as the show goes on, we're going to see that he becomes more and more invested in helping the people that are moving with them. Because right now, James through episode three is very standoffish so it's interesting to think that his arc is going to involve him more and more with these people 
and versus less and less, right? There's that great quote. We've even played the clip in in our episode three coverage about how Elsa talks about how their father was moving them further and further away as if carelessness was contagious. Mm-hmm. Interesting to listen to Tim talk about how his his character's arc is actually going to become more invested in these people. A natural Dutton leader, right? I mean, that's what the Duttons are. And I would even put forth if, if carelessness is contagious, then at some point you might feel compelled to want to teach someone to be more capable <laughs> so that it stopped getting your group. You know, you could stop having carelessness and you could start being like, maybe if I could teach this man how to fish, he, I wouldn't be worried about him stealing other people's fish. That type of thing. I think that I could see that's a natural thing. And plus his own family, like Elsa, starting to mesh with Ennis. Like I can see that there's, you know, there's going to be like a natural weaving of their family with the people on, on the trip. In the montage of shots that they showed, they definitely showed clips from episodes that haven't aired yet. One of which it seems that they do a de-aging on Shay, and we actually get to see Shay in a Civil War outfit. So there's going to, it looks like we're going to get a Shay Brennan Civil War flashback. And that he marched with the Buffalo Soldiers, which we kind of had been like kind of just tiptoeing close to that, but not being 100% sure that that seemed right. Right. Sam Elliott in our interview mentions the fact that Taylor had said somehow Shay, this white guy, marched with the Buffalo Soldiers, which is, I mean, not famously, but they were a an all black platoon of soldiers. So Sam in his interview with us is funny. He's like, oh, I don't know how that really worked. But he, exactly. men- but he mentions it actually in this special also. He reiterates it. So it's definitely a part of the story is that Shay marched with the Buffalo Soldiers and that's where he meets Thomas at some point. But it looks like we're going to get a de-aged Sam Elliott a little bit. In a very quick flash, they showed that. I'm excited to get more Shay flashback, especially more Shay and Thomas, their origin story, right? Yeah, it would be wonderful to see them as younger men and and really still being optimistic and, you know, planning what's going to happen next with us knowing that's not what's going to happen. Talking about Easter eggs, he says, Mm -hmm. did you ever walk outside and only find one Easter egg uh, at, at Easter? And, and what that means as far as connecting the show to Yellowstone, that was the larger conversation. They have the blood to boy scenes, like just connecting the shows together, the universe. I mean, I think that Taylor is doing a fantastic job of making sure that there are these connective tissue moments where you can see how this family has evolved, but yet stayed close to their roots. And and I think you can see that. I think you did a great job last week in our coverage of pulling audio where you can hear, you know, that Taylor is writing that way. So if you are enjoying 1883, definitely encourage you to watch Yellowstone and vice versa. Even last week's episode where uh, James and Margaret talk about building a big house one day and seeing where the Dutton Ranch, what it looks like today. I mean, that's that is subtle, but it's also not subtle. It's subtle insofar as they're just talking to each other. They're not mm-hmm. they're not like showing blueprints for what the house is going to look like kind of thing. And certainly we've seen in the flashbacks, the initial Dutton house is just like a little cabin. It's like a little cottage. Yeah, but you know what? You know what was making me think after I, I had that moment of, of like flash in my brain? It was like I was wondering if we if we squint our eyes on Yellowstone now, could we see that cabin on the grounds? Like, is it Rip's cabin or is it one of those? And I think that would be so cool for Yellowstone watchers. I'm positive if if you can place that in a in a time, it's somewhere on the ranch. I'm sure that building or the bones of it, the 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 footings of it still exist in the modern Yellowstone Ranch. Let's listen to again. We can we can tell you, but you could also listen to it, and you'd probably rather listen to it. Let's listen to some of the stats about what it takes to make this show work. We have thirty something wagons, and it takes two to four horses to pull them. And I'm running from snow and rain and schedule and everything else. 
It's epic. There's no question about it. I'm not going to compare it to anything because I've never done anything like this. Yellowstone, at any given time, we might have 40 horses on set. On this, at any given time, we have 180, and we have a cattle herd. Ironically, we are having to actually have a, a, a trail drive in order to film a trail drive, and it's a challenge. We have goats, we have chickens, we have 60 wranglers, cowboys just working the horses to make sure everyone is safe. We have 80 trucks and drivers to move the whole company. I mean, this is bigger than a Beyonce tour. This is Game of Thrones on the Prairie. A Game of Thrones on the Prairie is the perfect summary of that. It was kind of wild to hear how many horses. That, For whatever reason, that was the thing that really blew me away from that clip when you compare it to Yellowstone, which I think about having so many horses. More than four times. It's four and a half times the amount of horses on this show than they have on Yellowstone. That's why. What struck me was when they said that they were having to have a real cattle drive in order to film a cattle drive. Uh, you know, I was like, wow, that's so true and so complicated. You know, like, <laughs> goodness. 80 trucks, 60 Wranglers, I mean, a full head of cattle, two to four horses pulling all those wagons, all those wagons you're seeing, those are not, those are real wagons. That's one of the things that I think I took away from this. And I felt it. You and I talk all the time uh, offline and in podcasts about computer graphics versus like practical effects. And this show, I think, hits in a really authentic way because it all feels real. Right. They did two months of creating the of Hell's Half Acre for four days of shooting. That was all real dirt on the ground. Those were all real buildings they built to film all of that. They're really traveling with 30 of these covered wagons. All of the costumes, Janie Bryan, a costume designer for the show, custom made all of the costumes for the show. It feels real. And I think you see that on the show. I think it comes through the screen. It definitely when they were speaking about the heat and the and the cold weather, depending on where they were filming and that, you know, they were feeling sweat in places they haven't sweat before. I I like snort laughed when they said that it was Isabel May who said she's sweating in places you didn't know you could sweat because girl, welcome to Texas. That is, <laughs> there are crevices that you sweat that you didn't know have sweat glands. And it was like, oh, my God. So I feel like especially riding on the on the heat of a horse in that heat. Oh, my God goodness that that is a whole it's a whole mood and it comes across on camera even when the makeup artist was talking about you know how they would alter the makeup to make sure that they looked dirty enough and again that's been a complaint of audiences their teeth aren't dirty enough or they're they don't look like they are really you know so rugged they were living this you know this is what was really happening they did all these different activities to really be ready for this I feel like what you're seeing is what you get. Maybe minus the teeth whitening. Maybe everyone's right on that. I'll give you that. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I liked when he said, you know, the only beauty shot we've done is when the ladies are on the train. Greg Moon is the makeup department head. He's the one speaking on this. You know, he's, he talks about how the train was the only beauty look ever since then. We're just trying to keep them looking dirty. And it's true. I was watching. I was watching. I was rewatching episode three getting ready when we were uh, getting ready to podcast about it. Tim McGraw, it's not just like a deep tan, which I'm sure a part of it is a deep tan. He is dirty. <laughs> yes, he is. I mean, there is, a, is. there is a layer of grime on that man that is insane. So, you know, <laughs> I, but I feel it, though. And that's why I appreciate it. I appreciate the work and in going into it. And it's why I'm spending so much time talking about it here, because I was so blown away by it, because it's confirming everything my bones were feeling about what I was watching on the show. 
It, I think when you hear Sam Elliott, who you know has made an entire career out of being a cowboy on Westerns, say that he was almost at his breaking point because it was so rigorous and so difficult, you know that it's legit because this man has been has been filming Westerns this whole time. And this is the first time that it's that it's too much for him. Like, wow, that that's saying a lot. Uh, just to, to your temperatures in the 90, 100, 110 degree temperatures in Texas, it was really mm-hmm. startling to listen to them say two weeks later they're in 10 degree weather because they actually moved into like the snowy environments. It made me appreciate the the um, costuming for that coat that Tim McGraw wears because it is such a woolly big coat. Um, you know, that, that that was actually probably very welcome. Kind of crazy. And that's why men had beards, by the way. It, uh, it it really helps your face if you have some furry furry facing on you. <laughs> really? Yeah, it for sure Do does. you feel warmer with a beard? I really do. I really wow, do. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I it's, mean, it's got to keep snow off your skin, so that's got to be good. And well, wind. Well, it, you know what? The snow collects there and the ice collects there, so it never actually hits your skin. That's the beauty of it. That's why Nice. It, it's like a cattle catcher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, like my like the mustache part is the soup strainer, right? It's it's oh, it's filtering gross. out all the things that needs to filter out. All the peas and carrots. My poor cheeks though, <laughs> my my little apple cheeks that I have though, they take all the freezer burn, unfortunately. Oh boy. Hey, you know who had like the best mustache on this episode? Rex Peterson, that horse trainer. Oh my goodness, sir. That was an excellent mustache. He was great. I mean, again, just a great horse guy with a fantastic curly Q mustache. What did you think of watching the Cowboy Camp? We've heard, I think everyone we interviewed talked about Cowboy Camp and they were all changed by it. But seeing and hearing the things that they were going through really put it all into like a new light. I have a good feel for being around horses. My my children have taken horseback riding throughout the years. And so, you know, the amount of dirt and grime and again, heat off of those horses when it is the summertime and you're out there for an hour, you know, just in the blazing sun, I can tell you I'm sweating, I'm dirty, I'm gross, and I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and so I, I felt like it's it's fantastic that they actually bothered to put them through this whole camp because I appreciated that then when they got the scripts, they were able to sort of just naturally know where my hands go, where, how does my body sit? How do I, you know, handle talking? I mean, you're not just having a walk and talk, you're having a ride and talk and you need to do it properly or else audiences are going to be wagging fingers. So I feel like there, you have so much more on your plate when you're trying to do all these other things, dealing with little kids, trying to make sure that they know what they're doing on this. There's so much that was going on. I think it was really, really important that they learned how to drive the wagons and how to ride the horses and how to handle the ropes. I think that's why we're getting such great performances out of them. Right. I mean, LaMonica, I think, is the one who says you have to learn how to do it here in cowboy camp so that when you're on screen, you're not thinking about it. And it does appear as like a natural kind of thing. Uh, You know, I I thought back to our interview with Faith when we interviewed Faith and Isabel May at the same time. She talked about how she grew up riding, but turned out was did not learn how to ride properly. And so that the show and she hadn't ridden because she had a bad fall years ago. So she hadn't actually ridden in a long time. And the show really taught her how to ride properly. So for even someone like Tim, like Faith, who clearly are comfortable on horses, right? Watching watching that video, Tim McGraw looks like a goddamn cowboy, right? He's got the tank and the tattoo on his arm and, you yeah. know, him and Taylor Sheridan. Taylor Sheridan looks like he goes everywhere in a horse. I'm surprised. I make it <laughs> that he doesn't even have a car. I think That's he probably so just has a team of horses that he rides. But then they were teasing that when they were doing the egg on the spoon <laughs> yes. game that Taylor was like maybe perhaps putting his thumb on the egg and maybe cheating a little bit. I was kind of surprised. that There was a lot of... 
that's some like kind of character assassination kind of comment like oh he might have cheated and i was like oh do not say that i love that whole section because it showed what i think the real point of cowboy camp was on top of teaching them things they need to know how to do on screen one that i really uh, uh, a tangent on my tangent um he talked about how they're roping they're riding they're learning how to do this and learn learn how to ride wagons so they can ride wagons but they were teaching them how to take take courses through the river because at some yeah. point they're going to be doing this river crossing and so they need to know how it looks like to take horses through water that's it seems extreme but also i appreciate that like i want these guys to look like they have some semblance of what they're doing when they're going to take them across the river and that it's not movie magic it's not you know they're not cgi they're not they weren't actually walking on a ramp that was two inches lower than the water you know like that this was really happening and they were really doing it i think you know it gives the authenticity to what we're seeing as the performance but also i think it lends to you don't have to act like you're hot you're hot you know you don't have to act fatigued you're actually fatigued when you actually have those people who do that i don't feel like you need to do the whole like method acting thing but i think that this is a, a novel way to do method acting where you're actually going through the process that your character is going through, not making it up or anything, not staying in character, but like doing it because this is part of the process. Amazing. I mean, I could think that someone like Faith Hill or, or Tim McGraw or, or Sam Elliott, they might say, I want it. I want an air conditioning unit inside my outfit. They would do that for plenty of stars. You know, they would, they would do things like, I don't want to look this way. I don't want to look too dirty. I don't want to look too messy. Like, some stars would care and would care of their comfort you know maybe they actually have a stunt double that sits up on the wagon and they ride in the jeep you know and then they meet you at the camp you know but that isn't this crew let's be clear tim mcgraw and faith hill don't need to be doing this show Sam Elliott doesn't his his star is born money alone is paying for him for the rest of his life they don't need to be doing this but something is driving them to do this I think that should tell you a lot about the kind of story that they think they're telling and as a viewer so far I feel like I'm getting is a group of people who are committed to telling us a really important and interesting story from a specific point of you know from a specific place in time the original tangent I was going on was Cowboy Camp that whole vignette of the show and the 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 teasing Taylor about maybe cheating during the egg on the spoon uh, controversy was the bomb Bonding that seemed to come out of that. Watch all of the film that they had, all the B-roll footage that they had there. Everyone in the cast is in all of those shots. They were all going through. It wasn't like they, you know, Tim and Faith and Isabel had like their own special time to go. And maybe they had extra time. But, you know, Eric Nelson is in the same shot with Taylor Sheridan, is in the same shot with Mark Riesman, in the same shot with Tim McGraw. Like they were all going through it at the same time. And so that creates a really natural bonding experience, which, again, I think is coming through in the show. There is a chemistry on this among this cast. That when you see what they experienced and the hell and the physical vigorousness of cowboy camp for a two months period, I, it's coming across. It's worth it. I, I, you're 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 seeing that pay off. I think in what we're seeing on the screen, which I love. I love that it's trickling down to even the youngest actors. Um, Howdy, Rick. Oh, oh my goodness, so freaking. 
fucking cute. I mean, he's such an adorable little guy. And I love that when he said that little line, he's like, he's like, he likes to be outdoors and I like to be outside. Yes. <laughs> like that whole little cutie thing. I think it matters to also get a guy who's five, six years old to play a five, six year old when they could have most easily found like an eight, nine, 10 year old to who's just little, you yeah. know, to be able to play that part. And I'm glad that they, that they went with the real deal. Cowboy camp was cute. I learned to swing a rope. Uh, when he was talking about it, he's like, my favorite scene was with Tim and we got to shoot a deer and I got blood on my face. It was cool. That, I can listen to Audi Rick. I mean, he is adorable. He's, really he's adorable he's, and so well spoken really for a six year old. So, yeah, I'm really, really happy that they did this. I'm happy that they not only talked about the show and why they're doing the show and the characters, but they also showed this aspect of it, what it takes. I, in my notes, I have it takes a village. Mike, can I tell you, it struck me so hard, the earnestness when the prop master, we had the one prop master who was, uh, who was indoors, and I'm so sorry, I'm not remembering everyone's names, but we had the prop master who was indoors talking about the tact for the, for the horses and stuff. Yep. And then we had the prop master who was outdoors, who was telling us more about the Native American. Yes, with the bookcase, um, right. Yes. The earnestness, like the actual like pleading in their eyes to the to the viewers like listen to me we are doing everything we can to source this in an authentic way and we're trying to be as realistic as possible like it kind of like it hit my heart how much they were like pleading with the camera to like please listen like we are doing our very best and i was glad they mentioned sourcing um the the one prop master said you know we're doing what we can as we're trying to source it, because we mentioned that in the podcast that I was like, you know, this is COVID times. It's not easy to, to locate these things on in good times, you know, but to try to get these things during a time when people are, you know, on sort of we're back to kind of modified lockdown stuff. It's it's really difficult. And so I'm I'm so happy they gave not just like. You didn't have Taylor Sheridan say it. But you had like the real individual professionals telling you because we do that with our set decorator, Beth Kushnick, over on Decorating the Set on the podcast. She explains how difficult it is to do these things. And I think it's different when you hear it directly from the professional. Right. I mean, she Beth is running. She is uh, she's doing the set decoration for Bridge and Tunnel on Epics, which is a late 70s, early 80s period place piece on Long Island, New York. Even just going back 30 years to that time period, sourcing is an issue to get period accurate things especially in COVID times. Now now you're going back 135, 138 years trying to get period accurate pieces. I, I, The sense of responsibility, I said this at the very top of this, from Taylor all of the way down, from the cat on the cast side and on the creatives behind the, behind the camera side, there is a real sense of responsibility and a, a sense of duty to get this right as much as they can. And everyone who speaks in this special, I think, exudes how serious they are taking this sense of responsibility to tell an, a historically accurate uh, story. You and I are already on board with the show. For people who are maybe naysayers, maybe are pick, pickpocketing or nitpicking <laughs> uh, and taking them out of the story, you right. know, I hope they watch this and they and maybe have like a new appreciation for the amount of work that's going on behind the screen, behind the camera. 
There's so many things that you and I learned doing the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast about the difference between the movies or shows that use practical effects versus the movies or shows that use CGI. And one of the things that we said unanimously was when you're out there really doing it, practical things, really hands-on the audience can tell and it makes a difference. And in this case, there's no strings holding things up. Those more, most people would CGI the Longhorn in. Mm -hmm. There is no reason to have to have a true cattle drive. Why would you want to feed them and deal with them? You know, you could be having the perfect shot and some Longhorns taking a dump in the background. Like you don't want this. They're animals. You know, Monica said some days you show up to set and the the cows just don't want to do what you want them to do. (laughs) Can you imagine (laughs) Uh, and that's all expensive, expensive choices on the cow's part. <laughs> so, you know, I really give them a lot of credit for being that. I don't want to say experimental because that's not quite the right wording, but old school. Yeah, it is going against the grain of like what modern shows look like in order to be authentic. And I and man, if you can't give appreciation for that, then, you know, the, the, the entire Taylor Sheridan universe might not be for you. But if right. you have appreciation for authenticity, for putting in the work, getting sweaty, getting dirty, these shows are, are really doing it. Taylor made me laugh at the very top of this. He's talking about casting and he, you know, he approached him to do the flashback scenes for Yellowstone from which this entire show grew out of um, because a studio executive, you know, asked what is the origin story of the Duttons? So Tim, so Taylor talking to Tim says, you know, there's a role for a, a wife in this. Also, you think Faith would be interested. He made me laugh because he says, you know, if you take out your director's handbook, it says right there, don't have husband and wife you know act together on screen like real life husband and wives and then he stops and he says the handbook also says don't you know film horses and children so there you go you know he's breaking all the rules and i'm sure if you go into the deep the deep uh fine print probably don't do her you know cattle drives either it's probably on there well certainly don't run live animals through (laughs) rivers right Right. Right. like that might not go well you know the amount of safety that has to be going on on this set again you know huge props to them for doing the extra work and making sure everyone's safe and that it still looks real. 60 Wranglers working the horses and all the cattle to make sure everyone is safe. I mean, I, I, was, I appreciated they took the time to even mention that. Like, just so you don't think it's a free-for-all that, you know, Isabel May and, you know, Eric Nelson are really having to wrangle. Like, there are actually professional cowboy wranglers behind the scenes making sure everyone is actually staying safe. So it all comes together like a Beyonce production for Game of Thrones <laughs> on the Prairie so that we can all enjoy it at home week in and week out and i gotta tell you i really am this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to the yellowstone podcast 1883 episodes if you wouldn't mind going to apple podcasts or spotify podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe and while you're there especially at apple and spotify podcasts if you could leave us five star that would be fantastic so that we don't have to put a snake in your grass by your house and have it bite your doopy that was a holdover from episode three (laughs) thanks for listening Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. 